All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. Really good to be with you, especially. We're going to um, hit the halfway point as we work our way through the story of Ruth. And um, let me just start off by being super transparent tonight. Um, if there was going to be, if you, if you at the beginning of this series was like, you have to skip one part of the story. Let me be totally transparent. If you had asked me at the beginning a few months ago which part I would skip, it would be this part. How's that for like a really compelling introduction? Aren't you glad that you came tonight? Um, that's, that's, that's what I would do. I would skip this part because it's not because this part is bad or it's uninteresting. It's just not very spectacular. It's kind of normal. Um, it actually kind of features an interaction that all of us have, have, have experienced before. And let me just kind of help you wrap your mind around the scene that we just read. You probably didn't get it at first reading. Um, let me just ask this. Who has ever, um, you know, just imagine the scenario, I guess. Maybe you've probably met somebody before. And when I say met somebody, I mean met somebody romantically. And, um, you know, maybe it's at a party or maybe it's at a bar. I'm not sure where you meet people romantically, uh, but you meet and uh, you have a conversation and there's a spark, there's chemistry, you find out you have similar interests, you're like, oh my gosh, like, you love tacos, I love tacos. Like, we should, you know, get together and talk some more. And the night ends, though, right? Like, you don't know exactly, you know, exactly how this is going to go. And um, go back home. And what is the very first thing you do when you go back home? It's like, you got to talk to somebody, right? So you're like calling uh, a family member, you know, for those of you who live with people, you know, you're like leaning kind of on their uh, door frame and you're like, so what did you do tonight? So you can just bring up the fact that you met somebody and be like, oh, I met this guy, you know, well, okay, that's fine. I don't care what you watch on TV. This is what I did. I met somebody. And then you kind of play out like every little detail of kind of how that went, right? You ever did this? So it's like, did he take the trash? for me because he likes me? Is he just a nice guy? Like what, you know, you're just kind of playing every little detail in the back of your head. Um, Anybody ever had that conversation before? That's basically the conversation that we're seeing tonight. In fact, I, I, I can kind of so, this in my own life, when I first met Megan, um, me and my wife, Megan, this is probably a little bit surprising since I'm a pastor, but Megan and I, we actually met dancing. Um, I know scandalous. Um, it wasn't like booty dancing. We were like at the club, okay? Um, we were doing the Carolina Shag, which I know sounds even more sketchy than booty dancing, uh, but it's really a classy dance. So you can YouTube it and it's totally safe for work. It's a very classy dance. And um, we met doing uh, that and then the evening ended and I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to go. And I remember uh, the next day I was working out uh, with my roommate at the time. His name was Matt. And Matt's the type of guy who just like if something kind of goes through his head, he just says it. And I remember kind of telling him, you know, we're, we're pumping iron and we're talking about girls. And I'm like, I just like met this girl and, uh, you know, we danced and it was really great. I think I'm going to ask her out. And I could tell Matt was trying to kind of like, like he was trying to kind of figure out like which girl I was talking about um, because we went to college together. He's like, okay, who, Megan, 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 Nap, Nap, Megan, Nap. You're going to ask out Megan Knapp, like, she's way out of your league. Like, she, there's no way. You can ask her. She's not going to say yes. It's like, thanks for the encouragement, buddy. I appreciate it. Like, be weeping over by the treadmills if you want me. Um, but that's how my conversation went. Uh, and he was wrong. We're married now. So take that. Matt Thomas, who sometimes listens to this podcast. So... Um, <laughs> Here's the deal. We've all had that conversation before, right? That's kind of like what this scene is. What we saw last week is Ruth met Boaz. She met a guy, basically. And tonight, um, she is going to process how it went with that guy, uh, with her mother-in-law, Naomi. That's basically what you're going to see. On the surface, it doesn't seem particularly spectacular. Uh, But let me just say this before we jump into the scene, is I felt really convicted this week because I think, again, I was like, I start the week and I'm like, what in the world am I going to do with this? And then I get to the end of the week. I get here and I'm like, radically changed by this. In fact, I think this very seemingly unspectacular scene 
is maybe the clearest glimpse of hope in this entire story. And it's really good news for us because I think we all, we're all enticed by the idea of hope. Um, we all want it, kind of no matter what it is that we believe about who God is. I think we even have prayed for it at times. Like, God, I hope I passed this exam that I didn't study for. I hope that the cop is pulling, off the per- pulling over the person in front of me uh, and not me. I was going two miles per hour slower than them, uh, pull them. Like, we all hope for hope. And I think we don't really have a clear definition of like, what does it look like when it actually enters into our lives? I think a lot of times, at least for me, I kind of anticipate it'll be in this great, grandiose, spectacular moment. Jesus shows up, flowing robes, boom, you're out of debt. Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate it. And I think the problem is that life just doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way when he brings hope into our lives. I think he actually brings it in in scenes like this one that seem very unspectacular, that seem very meaningless. And really what we see is God is reigning and ruling and moving and working to bring about joy and hope in our lives in the moments we expect it the least. And so I'm really excited to study this. Um, I'll take back what I said at the very beginning that I would skip this. I think it's very, very important. It's changed me. I hope it impacts you as well. And so we're going to jump into it. Now, as we jump into this, here's how we're going to kind of see what God does in this scene. We see this scene, and kind of three different people are involved. There's Ruth, there's Naomi, and there's Boaz. He's not there, but he's being talked about because he's the guy. Uh, you know, does he like me or like like me? That's what they're trying to kind of figure out. Uh, and each one of these characters kind of in this story, God is using to bring about a very specific hope uh, in the lives of one another. It's really, it's really spectacular how God does this. And so we're going to kind of look at each one of these characters and see uh, exactly how this plays out. Now let's start with Ruth. Ruth is the person we first see in the story, and what we see is that uh, through Ruth, God uses her to bring about provision. God brings hope into this family by using Ruth to bring about provision. And let me just, uh, let me just show this to you in, um, in verse 17 that we just read, okay? I'm going to just go ahead and sit down. I'm so excited. Okay. Verse 17. So she, she being Ruth, she gleaned, which is basically the process of getting the food. She's out in the fields, and she's working this field for her family. Uh, she gleaned in the field until evening. So it means she worked a really long day. In fact, I was reading people this week who said, she, I mean, she could have worked like a 12, 14, 16-hour day. This is a long, hard day. And um, then she beat out uh, what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, <clears throat> Uh, you can't get an ephah of anything at Whole Foods right now. At least I don't think you can. So it's like, how, ex- how much exactly is an ephah? Uh, we're not completely sure, but historians say it's somewhere between like 30 to 50 pounds of grain. Uh, here's the point, though, is that this is a lot of food. For one day's work, this is a lot of food. It's almost a miraculous amount of food. Um, you have to keep in mind, like back in this day, like the ultimate uh, currency is food, right? I mean, like that's the one currency that that you know is going to be good anywhere. And for, for Ruth, she basically is showing up. Think about this. For those of you who work on commission, she basically w- shows up at her job for the very first day, and she works, and she makes like a half month's wages on the first day. Like that's the way it goes, and she shows up. And then look at verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. That's a reference last week. Remember, Boaz invited her over to his lunch table and even gave her the leftovers. She's bringing home the leftovers to Naomi. Ruth is a really thoughtful and kind individual. Now, here's the deal. When I first read this, it seems very unspectacular. Am I right? I mean, it's just like they were hungry, and Ruth got up, and she went to work, and she worked, 
and she got food, and she came home, and they ate. It's like, what do I do with that? Um, now, here's the thing. Is I think this, I think this part of the story brings considerable, not just hope, but really a challenge um, to those of us who are really struggling to find hope in what it is that we do. This is just my observation. I work a lot of times with people who are kind of working their first jobs or their first, like, real jobs. I understand, like, you probably had a paper route when you were eight. But I'm saying, like, for the first time, like, you don't have summer break, spring break, winter break, all these breaks. It's like, oh, my gosh. Like, I get two weeks of vacation if I'm lucky. My job feels very purposeless. Um, I think this kind of what's happening here is really good news if you struggle with what it is that you do day in, day out. Because here's the unbelievable observation that I'm going to make. You want to know how God impacts this family profoundly? You want to know how Ruth makes a profound impact in her community? You want to know how Ruth really loves somebody really well? You know what she does? Like, she works. And she doesn't work a job where, like, the company mission statement is changing the world. She doesn't go to a job where, like, a certain percentage of the profits are given to this particular charity. And so, like, I can feel really good about what it is I do. Like, she goes and she works. She works a field. It's hard work. It is very uh, unglamorous. And she comes home. And she offers food. And they eat. And they survive. Now, here's my observation. I don't know if this is fair or not, but I think I've seen it a lot, is that a lot of times for people, I don't even know if I can say our generation, I feel like I'm too old to say that now, um, tear, single tear going down. So let's just say for, for some of you in this room, uh, particularly those of you who are just getting done with school, um, here's my observation, is a lot of times you are kind of so consumed with finding something meaningful out there uh, you don't realize kind of how meaningful the opportunities right in front of you are. And, and not only that, but my observation is you are so kind of in perpetual in uh, the, the great quest, the great treasure hunt of finding kind of the perfect opportunity, the most meaningful opportunity, the opportunity that lets you make a difference in the world um, that you perpetually feel guilty because what you are doing currently is tremendously meaningless. Now, um, let me just give you an, an example because I don't know if that's particularly tangible yet or not. But um, So my wife and I, we're adopting a little girl from Taiwan. I was just there a couple months ago. And um, there's this girl, she just graduated from college. And after college, she had committed six months to work as a nanny in this orphanage that we are adopting our little girl, Hannah, from. Now, this little girl, uh, this, this 20-year-old girl, um, get there, and she'd been there for about a month, and she was going to leave. She was going to go home. And me, being the type of person who tends to just say whatever kind of goes through my head, um, I was like, well, why are you going to leave? Like, you made this commitment, and you're not sticking to this commitment. Like, what exactly is it that's going on? And she's like, well, here's the deal. Like, I wanted to make a big difference after college. I wanted to help the lives of orphans. I don't have a chance to do that here. All I'm doing is changing diapers and giving bottles. Um, oh, yeah, and then she went on to say, but I have a teaching degree, so I'm going to move back to the U.S., and I'm going to start working with students, and I'm going to teach and make a difference in their lives as well. Now, there's two things that went through my head, and because what goes through my head came out of my mouth, not just went through my head, but came out of my mouth as well. Um, the first was this. It's like, what did you think making the difference, making a difference in the life of orphans looked like? 
particularly like six-month-old orphans. Like, were you going to help them with their job resume? Were you going to like kind of help them learn their multiplication tables? Like, you know what they need? They need their diapers changed and they need bottles. Like, that's the way you change the life of an orphan. You do it every day. A lot, because there are a lot of them in one room. Over and over and over again. Two, here's the other thing I said, was, you know, what do you think it's going to be like when you come back to the U.S. and teach? Like, some of you are teachers in this room, right? It's like you walk into the room, and all of a sudden, people just kind of faint, and they're like, oh my gosh, like, I never had a passion for math, but now I have a passion for math, and I wasn't planning to go to college, but now I'm going to go to college. Like, it's hard work, right? Like, every single day, people aren't paying attention, and it's hard work if you're going to change the life of a single individual. And here's the thing. Here's why this matters so much to me. Here's what, what made me so sad is here is this girl. I'm not saying she's always going to be like this, but she's on a path to doing this. Here's this girl who's on a path uh, to never making a difference because she's always searching for an opportunity to make a difference. Like, here's a girl who's never really loving somebody in the name of always finding a bunch of people to love one day. And it makes me so sad for her because, like, God is putting these tremendous opportunities. They don't feel like it. Changing diapers and giving bottles doesn't feel like you're changing lives. But don't you see from a story like this one the mechanism through which God often brings about real tangible hope in the lives of those who need it the most is through a woman like Ruth just walking out of the fields, doing a hard day's work, coming back home, and repeat day after day after day after day after day. And what burdens me is, for many of you, is that that could be your story, that you could be on a path to never making a difference because you're always searching for an opportunity to make a difference, to not really loving the person who's in front of you in the name of loving a ton of people later on. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to kind of diminish or dismiss the struggle that like what you might do day in, day out is not very glamorous because I know, I know what a lot of you do and a lot of you, you don't do anything particular, particularly glamorous. But here's where I think the Christian worldview is so countercultural and so beautiful and so superior from any other kind of perspective on work or volunteer work or what, if you're unemployed, what you do with your free time. I mean, if you stay at home with your kids, whatever it is that you do during the day, from the secular perspective and other religious perspectives, there's a very strong sacred-secular divide. Some things are very meaningful. Some things are very meaningless. Some jobs are full of purpose. Some jobs are very purposeless. And for some of you, even who have been Christians for some time, this is the way you view your work. I, I would challenge that to say, is that really Christian? You might have seen that. You know, maybe you were raised Catholic and you see um, somebody who's like me, what I do in these like long flowing robes because like what I do is oh so important and uh, what you do is not very important. That's why you are dressed like a normal person. Or, you know, you walk in and there's holy water and then there's unholy water that you use to like wash your hands in the bathroom. And it's like, how do these things coexist in one another? But like, here's the thing we believe, that the Christian worldview declares that God has created everything. And Jesus is Lord over all. He rules and reigns over everything. And because of that, it is all sacred that your job can be sacred, that a woman, that a widow going out and picking grain can do so for the glory of God, and it can be sacred. We had somebody walk into this building a few weeks ago, um, and they literally asked me, uh, where's the holy water? And I was like, well, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's all holy. It's all made by God. Everything is holy underneath his reign and rule. And look, I know, I understand that for some of you, you can be like, well, that's easy for you to say, like, 
man, like you're, you're, I mean, I just feel like a lot of times people don't even understand, like what, they're like, what is it that you do? Do you just like walk into coffee shops and like change lives? And like, what? it's like, no, like my job is email and writing a nine page single space paper every week and then presenting it. Like that's my job. And it's not very glamorous. But underneath the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, it's sacred. It has purpose and it has meaning. And here's what I want. I want for you to get hope from this rather than being on the perpetual treasure hunt for the, per- the perfect, meaningful opportunity to instead kind of think through the Christian worldview lens and start to infuse meaning into your normal, everyday opportunities that are right in front of you. That's what I so wanted for this young lady. It's like, you have the opportunity to change the lives of orphans, change their diapers. Changing diapers are never glamorous, but the mechanisms through which God really does bring about hope very rarely are glamorous. How does God provide for this family? He has Ruth go out and pick grain. It's a hard day's work, and she does it day after day after day after day, but God uses her to provide. Now, if you look then... um, what we see then is not just that God uses Ruth to provide, but, she, but God also uses uh, Boaz. He uses Boaz to provide uh, redemption, the hope of redemption. God gives redemption through Boaz. And uh, we see this in verse 19. Now, it's interesting because, again, remember, this is just Naomi and Ruth kind of going back and forth. And um, basically, like, at this point, Naomi knows there's a guy in the picture, like, she just knows. Like, you don't get that much grain, and you don't get that much food without there being a guy in the picture, and so she does what any good mom would do. She just starts, like, overloading you with questions, right? Moms, that's exactly what you're supposed to do in this scenario. So verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? And blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, here's the thing. As you know, like uh, anybody watch Saturday morning cartoons growing up and, you know, one of the uh, characters would have like a bright idea or all of a sudden kind of the puzzle pieces started to fit together and what would happen? The light bulb would go, bing, you would turn right on. Uh, that's basically what's happened to Naomi in this scene, uh, particularly when she says at the very, very end, uh, Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, let me just kind of tell you what is going on in Naomi's mind. In our mind, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what's going on here. But Naomi is starting to understand that God is actually working for good. I mean, if you've been with us in the series, you know, like, just a, a few days prior, she is saying, like, God, why have you cursed me? Why have you ruined my life? And it's like, boom, bink. All of a sudden, this is starting to come into place. Like, God, you are working, and you are good, and you're not just good, but, like, you're bringing about a better plan for my life and our lives than, like, I even wanted for my life. If you remember, like, from the first chapter, uh, the one thing that Naomi wanted Ruth to do is, like, abandon me, go back to Moab, meet a pagan husband, and get married. It's better than you being alone. And she's all of a sudden, like, oh, my gosh, like, 
God's not just going to keep her in our family. God's not just going to have her get married, but she's going to marry like a man of God, a man of the community, a man of character and stature and dependability and somebody who's respectable. This is way better than I could have ever kind of planned for myself. Side note, I can't make an entire point of this, but this is just the way God works. I mean, like C.S. Lewis said, our desires are not too strong, they're too weak. We want too little of our lives. I feel like Naomi is a great example of this, where a lot of times in the midst of crisis, we are way too willing to settle. We're and we settle for bad guys. We're, we're kind of freaked out about what it is that we're going to do with our lives, and all of a sudden we just kind of retreat into isolation. We leave community in the name of like finally figuring out the right next step. Our desires are way too weak, and God, I mean, it, the amazing thing about God is he does what in this story, he does it in our lives. Like, he is more committed to our joy. He is more committed to us flourishing than we even are. It's beautiful. I love this scene. Now, it probably doesn't jump off the page. It's like, well, wait a second. Like, where does all this marriage stuff come from? It's when she says, a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, let me say this. It's not weird. Like, when she says one of our relatives, she's not like, yeah, like, you and Boaz are brother and sister. Like, you guys should get married. It's not weird like that, okay? Like, they're not even related by blood. Um, In this culture, there was this firm understanding of what is called a kinsman redeemer. It's what she's referring to right there when she says one of our redeemers. In Hebrew, um, it's the word goel, goel. Um, And basically, what a kinsman redeemer did was he had the responsibility in the family of kind of bailing people within the family out of trouble. And so tragedy would strike the family a lot of times. You would have, um, I don't know, you would have somebody go bankrupt and be in crazy amounts of debt, and the kinsman redeemer would bail that person out. Or you would have somebody, um, I don't know, you would have somebody die, and their kids would be left as orphans, and they would adopt those kids into their families. Or uh, somebody's husband would die. And a lot of times, the kinsman redeemer would take it upon himself to marry the widow because, uh, like we said in the series, to be a widow was a really uh, bad fate. It just was not a good way to live. And so that's kind of the expectation that's starting to like enter into Naomi's mind. Like, oh my gosh, like this is what God's doing. Like, oh, you guys like we're related and he's a a kinsman redeemer. And I just see her getting like more and more and more and more excited. Have you seen um, that commercial that's on TV right now where there's like a bunch of women in a circle and they just get kind of like higher and higher in the pitch of their voice until all the glass around them shatters? Um, I feel like that's what Naomi is doing right now. It doesn't say that in the text, but I just kind of feel like that's the, it's just like things are escalating very, very quickly. Oh my gosh, I see exactly how this is happening. I'm so excited. Uh, you guys could potentially get married. That's basically the, 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 the dots that she's connecting. Now, um, let me just do this. Let me hit the pause button on this story because <clears throat> I feel like it would be, a lot of times people just kind of move on like, oh, that's just the way it was in this culture. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. That's just the way it was. Can I just ask a question? Is anybody a little bit freaked out by the idea of like a kinsman redeemer? Like, isn't that a little bit weird? Like, that's a lot of responsibility, right? You know, to think to yourself, like, what if that was you? You'd be like, man, I can understand like giving Ruth a job if I was running a business. I can understand like giving her a little bit of money, like if she needs it, but like marry her? Like marry her? Like, what if I don't think she's attractive? Like, what if she's not the one? What if I don't want to put a label on anything right now? Like, what if, you know, I'm just trying to like, (laughs) what if I'm just trying to kind of like, 
you know, explore my options, and I want to travel some. I want to see the world. I'm not ready to get married yet. It may be a little bit freaked out, like it would be really good for me if you could not have your husband die in this time span because I'm going to travel until I'm 45, and then I'll get married. Um, yeah, I mean, like that's the spirit of our age. So we're a little bit, little bit freaked out by this. You should be. You should be. Now, here's the interesting thing. As I was reading uh, a counselor kind of who was writing about this, and he said that, we as Americans really should be kind of freaked out and even a little bit offended by this scene because for us as Americans, we tend to view help through the lens of being a donor as opposed to a redeemer. He says this really brings to conflict the way that we as Americans believe that we are meant to help others, and it's largely through donation. And so you check out at the grocery store, do you want to donate a dollar to this particular cause? Yes, I do. And it's like, it's kind of meant to make us feel better about ourselves. What what this guy was saying, he was saying, it's not that that's bad. It's not that it's evil. It's not that it's wrong. It's good. It makes a difference. But the Bible has a far higher standard for what it means to help another. That in the Bible, the one who really helps another takes a step beyond being a mere donor to being an actual kinsman redeemer. Now, I feel like this would have been really puzzling to me, um, but I feel like in my own life right now, for the first time, I'm really beginning to feel like the weight of what this means um, and really the difficulty that comes with this. Now, I said this earlier, and many of you already know this already. My wife and I, uh, we are adopting a little girl from Taiwan. Uh, I have a picture here that doesn't really fit into the sermon, but I just... Yeah, that's just why I wanted to do it. Yeah, that's sweet. Like, um, and so that's Hannah on the left, uh, and then that's my wife, Megan. And Megan has been living in Taiwan for 74 days now. Um, that's a long time. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about she's in Taiwan. Can we take that down? Because you're going to stare, and I'm going to cry, and neither of those will let us get done on time, okay? Um, <clears throat> you know, we've had a lot of conversations um, like, just about how hard this is. Like, if we're just honest, there's a lot of great things about it. I love being able to wake up to pictures of them together. I love, you know, Hannah crawled for the very first time. I got to see that last week, and it was on video, and that was awesome. Um, but it's, like, really hard. It's hard to be away from my wife. It's weird. I mean, we've been married for over seven years. Like, it's really weird for us to be together and then uh, away. I mean, it's just, it's hard for her. It's really hard for her to be away. She, I mean, she didn't speak the language. Like, almost everybody who lives where she's living doesn't speak English, um, and I'm, I'll just tell you, like, English and Mandarin do not have a lot of, like, natural linguistic bridges, okay? It's, it's, it's hard to just, like, go to the McDonald's. It, it's impossible. And we've talked a lot about this. Like, why is this so hard? Like, why are we still waiting? Why hasn't God remembered us? We're, we're basically waiting for permission for her to be able to leave the country. And, you know, it wasn't really until I studied this and was just reading what this counselor said, um, I just told Megan, I was like, I feel like we, but you in particular, are feeling the full weight <clears throat> of what it actually looks like to really enter into another person's suffering. I think we don't, we don't really experience that very often. I don't know if we've really experienced that our entire lives. And I feel like maybe for the very first time, we're experiencing what does it look like to fully incarnate? What does it look like to really be a kinsman redeemer in the life of another? And it is, it is good and it is beautiful, but it is really, really hard. It is really, really scary. It is really, really 
painful to say to a little girl who's now our daughter, as long as you're in Taiwan, we're in Taiwan. If you have to go to the hospital for a week with pneumonia, we will be in the hospital for a week with you. If you've got crazy mutant bugs that climb around where you're living because you're in this tropical environment and we thought bugs that big were extinct, but they're not extinct, like, we'll be there. And we'll let them crawl over us when we sleep and uh, we'll kill them uh, in your honor to protect you and defend you. Sorry if that offends anybody, but they're dangerous. You know, like, sorry, my daughter comes first. Um, and I'm proud of my wife. She'll, she'll take some spiders out. I'll be honest with you now. And that's, it's a real, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I, I think probably for all of us, you'd say that's admirable and that's a beautiful thing, but it's hard. Let me be super transparent. It is hard. But I think it's good. And I think for the first time in our lives, like we're actually experiencing what does it actually look like for us to fully enter into the suffering and the pain of another. To, like, to step away from just being a donor to being a kinsman redeemer. And here's the thing I love, not just about maybe the challenge of this scene where you see that this is just like a normal cultural expectation um, in, in perfectly sophisticated people, but I think more than anything, it, it really is meant to be cause for us to rejoice, to give thanks. I mean, one of the things we've been talking a lot about in this series is how, like, Boaz ultimately is pointing to a man who will come from his line, who will do a far greater work, who will be a far greater kinsman redeemer, but the person of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing I feel like we've learned through our experience of Megan being in Taiwan, and just from studying this story, is I am so glad that our God is not a donor, but he is a kinsman redeemer. And I think... Here's the thing. I think this is one of the most specific ways that Christianity is unlike really any other faith system that's out there. I mean, I think a lot of times in our culture, people take intro to religious studies courses and they study kind of the, the, the principles of world religions. And I, I took a class that was exactly like this and somebody who's very educated and has a PhD gets up and says, like, well, all religions are essentially the same. Like, look, like, this is what this teaches about uh, being charitable, and this is what this teaches about charitable, and what Buddhism teaches is the exact same as Christianity. You're right. There are a lot of those comparisons and similarities, and, and yeah, I mean, those things are there. But here's the thing that makes Christianity unlike any other religion, is every other religion, God doesn't go really much further than being a donor. He'll donate teaching. He'll donate, like, hey, here's a good way for you to live your life. He'll donate kind of pithy, um, feel-good statements. So if you're suffering and you just had a family member die or if something went really hard uh, in your life, here's kind of this inspirational phrase about how it's all going to get better. But it kind of ceases there. But Christianity alone says that God takes a step beyond mere donation towards redemption. And he doesn't just give teaching. He doesn't just offer pithy, wise statements. He ultimately offers himself. And God, he steps out of heaven and he steps into history as a man. A man who is able to fully empathize with the pains and the difficulties of the human experience. Later in the New Testament, Jesus is spoken as the one who is able to fully sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be human because he has lived it. This is the good news of the incarnation that we preach every single Christmas time. That Jesus, he knows what it's like to suffer. So 
Do you know what it's like to be single and to struggle with being single in a culture that idolizes marriage? Anybody ever struggle with that before? Well, so does your God who knows what it's like to be in his 30s and be single. Like, do you, have you ever struggled with somebody that you really counted on, a friend or a family member? I mean, letting you down, letting you down in the moment that you needed them the most. Like, so has your God, who in the night that he is being arrested and preparing to put, be put on trial for his crucifixion, the men that he invested three years of his life into are sprinting away. Literally, in the book of Mark, one of his disciples sprints away so fast, he loses all his clothes and runs away naked. Like, that's how quickly they're trying to get away from him in the moment that they need, he needs, him the, needs them the most. Have you ever struggled so much, has life been so hard, that you have wanted to cry out, like, God, why have you forsaken me? Like, here's the crazy thing is even Jesus Christ has experienced that. As the nails are being pierced through his hands and through his feet, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you see, like, other religions, other belief systems, other feel-good, think-positive worldviews They might make you feel hope, but hope needs a backbone. It needs to be rooted in truth. And Jesus Christ, on the cross, crucified, taking upon himself the sins of the world and resurrecting three days later, is ultimately the bedrock upon which our hope can be rooted. And yeah, it is a little bit freaky when you see a guy like Boaz have the responsibility to potentially marry this woman. Like, is she the one? Like, they didn't ask dumb questions like that back then. I'm just going to try to control myself because I'm about to go off here. (laughs) Like, well, what if, like, there's better opportunities? Like, it's just like, love the person in front of you well now. But what if something more meaningful is going to come on later? Like, start infusing meaning into the opportunities now and stop making excuses and stop being able to excuse away the very difficult fact that it's tremendously hard to love one person with excellence. Think about that. Is there somebody, anybody, that you can look at and say, I'm really going to fully enter into what you're going to be going through and what you're going through. And I'm not just going to be a donator. I am going to do the work of a redeemer because God has done the work of redemption in me. All right, I got to move on to the next point or I'm just going to go crazy. Um, Three, I'll just hit this really, really quick. It's kind of funny. Um, So we saw how God has done work through Ruth and Boaz, about to do work through Boaz. And then um, three, God gives protection through Naomi. God gives protection through Naomi. Um, I'm just going to hit this super quick. Um, but look at verse 21. Just here, as we read this, read this super carefully with me. Just tell me if you can see Naomi do anything kind of unusual or kind of tricky. Um, look at this in verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, um, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. 
And here's Naomi's response. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. You may pick up like what just happened there. Man, like Naomi is so tricky, tricky. Man, like she is such a good mom. Um, you know, so Ruth is like, yeah, like I met this guy named Boaz and he told me to stick close to his young men. And what does Naomi say? Like, that's great. Go work and stay close to his young women. Like, what is she doing? Like matchmaker, matchmaker. Like that's what she's doing. Like she is making sure that Ruth doesn't meet somebody. Like she knows, okay, it's going to be okay if you're with the women. Don't be close to the guys. Like here's what, here's what she's doing. She is protecting the future of Ruth. And this is just the point I want to make really quickly with this. And then I'll, I'll be done. Is I think this, we're going to talk more about this next week, and it's just too much to kind of hit at the end here. But I think you're getting a glimpse here into what it means to relate to another in a really healthy way. Whether that's a parent relating to a child, whether it's a spouse relating to one another, whether it's a friendship, whatever it is, I think ultimately at the root of healthy relationships is seeing the beautiful future that God can bring about in the life of another. Like, that's what Naomi's doing. She's like, everything else, circumstantially, looks like you're just working a thankless job. But I can, t- I can glimpse into the future, and I'm seeing, like, you and Boaz getting married and redemption and restoration happening, and, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And Naomi's willing to do whatever it takes to protect Ruth in the process of getting there. And I think that's ultimately, I mean, that's what it means to be a good parent, I think, to be a good spouse, to be a good friend, is that in one another's lives, like, one, you believe that God can bring about a beautiful future, a beautiful outcome in anybody's life. Through the power of the gospel, like, anything can be redeemed and restored. But not only that, but you're willing to do the hard work to help somebody get there. And that's what you're starting to see Naomi do. You're going to see it much more uh, next week. She's going to get much more kind of involved. But what you're really going to see is, yeah, I see where you're headed. I see what God's doing in your life. And I'm going to do what's required to help you get there. It's beautiful. And I think that's what we need to do in the lives of others as well. Uh, But we'll talk more about that next week. All right, let me read the last verse. And then we'll pray and do communion. Uh, Verse 23, I love it. It kind of ends, this part of the story ends on a cliffhanger. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz. So she listened, that's, that's really cool, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Uh, so if you can't tell, it kind of ends on a downer because it's like, oh my gosh, like you guys are going to get together. And then all of a sudden, they, it's like the harvest ended. I mean, this is like months have gone by and nothing has happened. It's kind of like, I mean, basically every TV show is like this, like, are those two going to get together? Oh, my goodness. And then, like, how does every season finale end? Like, oh, you know, it's just not a good time. It doesn't work. Uh, cross signals, whatever it is. That's, that's basically the way this part of the story has ended. And the kind of, so you come back next week. Next week, Ruth is going to do something about it. I love it. So kind of series premiere next week uh, for you to come back to as well. All right, let's pray. We'll do communion, and uh, we'll worship. And I'll talk about we can think about. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how you bring very real and tangible hope into our lives. We thank you that you are not a mere donor, uh, but you are a redeemer. Jesus Christ, he enters fully into the human experience. He takes on himself the fullness of sin, and he is crucified, coming even to a point where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He resurrected three days later victorious over Satan's sin, death, and hell. And because of that, we can have real hope, 
hope with a backbone for our daily lives. And so I pray that as we study this, we would be able to look at our normal lives and be thankful for the work that you're doing uh, in the unspectacular. I pray that we would look to the people around us who are hurting and we would really enter into their pain as you've entered into ours. And even as we think about the people in our lives, uh, we would see the beautiful future you can bring about uh, in them and through them and we would be willing to do the hard work to get them there, just the way that Naomi is doing in this story as well. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to celebrate communion. And we just ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.